me that uh, that things are, are quite unstable. But the BOJ has been enabling the government in spending more and more. So if you look at the uh, the bonds outstanding, it's uh, it's quite concerning. Um, although the the bonds not held by the Bank of Japan have been going down, and that's uh, concerning in of itself. So it looks a bit like the 1930s Japan of um, of helicopter money that resulted in. Um, hyperinflation in the uh, the late 1940s. So this is going to take a lot of careful handling. I think they've got a very strong team there. Uh, the um, the new governor and both of his deputies, very impressive uh, people. Uh, but um, certainly they'll, they'll need all of that. Okay, Nick, it's always great to speak to you. Thank you very much indeed. That's Nick Smith, who's Japan strategist at CLSA in Tokyo. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. And in Tokyo right now, the Nikkei 225 up 0.7%. In Australia, the SX200 has declined about 0.5%. The Cosby, uh, sorry, is up 0.5%. The Cosby in South Korea also up um, about 0.7%. Looks like we're going to see a gain um, in the Hang Seng of about 120 points or so at the open this morning. Thank you very much for listening. Please join me again tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. Coming up after the news, back chat. With Jim Gould and Ada Wong. Weather forecast for today. Going to be mainly cloudy, one or two rain patches at first. Bright periods, temperatures are going to rise to about 19 degrees during the day. And then tomorrow, uh, temperatures going to fall to about 13 degrees in the urban areas. A couple of good degrees lower uh, in the new territories. Temperature right now is 17 degrees. It's 64% relative humidity. There is a strong monsoon signal in force right now. <laughs> Times 8.32. Here's Todd Harding with the half-hour news. A property analyst says the authorities are likely to see yet more land sale tenders fail because developers don't have much appetite for new projects at the moment. Peter Churchhouse from Portwood Capital was speaking after the MTR Corporation announced yesterday that it had rejected all three bids it received for the development of the first phase of its Oyster Bay project on Northern Lantau. It's the third failed tender for property development this year and the second this month. Mr Churchhouse said market sentiment was weak. Generally speaking, consumer sentiment in Hong Kong is pretty fragile right now. Interest rates are rising, as we all know, and that's having an impact both on the supply side and the demand side. So it increases the costs of the developers and also perhaps reduces the demand from the consumer. The cost of construction is rising quite rapidly, or has been rising quite rapidly. And as we know, property prices in Hong Kong residential are down about 16% since their peak. The Honorary Life President of the Hong Kong Automobile Association says the government made the right decision in postponing the launch of its new e-toll system for tunnels. Wesley Wan says many drivers still haven't applied nor received their toll tag. He told RTHK the government should have been better prepared and needed to do more to publicise its scheme, especially to commercial drivers. I think this is the right decision to postpone the program because since uh, many drivers have not applied or did not receive the ETO yet, actually I haven't applied yet too. I think they underestimated the program because they've only issued, I think, more than 300,000 of them. And the funny thing is I heard that they are out of stock. The transport department should know the exact number of the vehicles that require the ETO, so this shouldn't be happening. 
HKE toll was meant to be rolled out at the Chingsa control area by the end of this month, but has been delayed by three months. Around 90,000 people have held a protest outside Israel's parliament in Jerusalem against a controversial judicial reform plan proposed by the government. Protesters held banners reading Save Israel's Democracy as the former Prime Minister Yair Lapid told the crowd the new far-right coalition would turn Israel into a dark dictatorship. The Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu criticised the actions of the opposition politicians. I call on the leaders of the opposition, stop it. Stop deliberately dragging the country into anarchy. Get a hold of yourselves. Show responsibility and leadership, because you're doing the exact opposite. And I want to tell you one more thing. Most citizens of Israel don't want anarchy. They want a substantive dialogue, and in the end, they want unity. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Backchat. I'm Jim Gould and your guest presenter is Ada Wong. Good morning, Ada. Good morning, Jim. On today's programme, we're looking at uh, Hong Kong's ongoing adoption of new digital technologies and services uh, following the pandemic. We're going to talk about three areas in particular, online banking and investment services uh, and the legal and medical sectors. Um, A fintech survey has found that customers came to rely more heavily on online investment platforms during COVID-19 rather than traditional banks, and it's expected that the trend will continue. Meanwhile, the courts are being urged to speed up the development of electronic services in the city's judicial system. And from March the 6th, the hospital authority is launching a digital medical certificate system for patients using public hospitals and clinics. After 9.15, we'll be talking about Valentine's Day, with another survey suggesting that the occasion is losing its appeal for young people. Let us know what you think on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. You can email us at backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call on 233-88266. And we have uh, joining us now uh, for our main topic, uh, Dr Wong Kam Fai, who's Associate Dean of the Faculty of Engineering at the Chinese University, and also on the line, uh, Kieran Humphrey, who's Litigation and Arbitration Counsel at uh, O'Melveny and Myers. Uh, good morning uh, to you uh, both. Um, perhaps uh, Dr Wong first. Uh, thanks for joining us. Hi, Jim. Uh, okay, so could I ask you first, before we talk about sort of specific uh, areas, um, how do you sort of rate the general trend of uh, digitisation in Hong Kong? Are we keeping up with, uh, with our, our rivals and, uh, and opposition? How are we doing? Slowly, slowly. Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, the government uh, in, the, in the latest policy address or even in the uh, innovation and technology development blueprint uh, do really emphasize on the importance of digital transformation uh, or of the society, including um, smart city, smart government. So uh, we are catching up, I think. I mean, uh, what has happened in the past three years, uh, the, the society is a little bit unstable, uh, firstly because of the... Uh, uh, of, of the uh, in 2029 because of the society turmoil and then uh, thereafter we have the COVID-19 
and these things are very urgent and the government has spent a lot of time in addressing them leading to uh, the slowdown of the transformation process but uh, uh, right at the right at the uh, right at Kerry uh, Kerry Lam's government at the beginning they they really do have the uh, direction in doing that but I think we, we have been slow we have been slow we have to catch up uh, how much of it is down to public attitude, do you think? I mean, w one of our news stories this morning is about the, uh, the electronic uh, toll system for the road tunnels having to be delayed because uh, it turns out that uh, around about half of the um, 800,000 vehicle owners hadn't registered for it. I think, I think that thing is mostly uh, about uh, publicity. I think the, the, the technology itself has been well-proven it's just that uh, the I don't know what has happened, but somehow uh, the lack of publicity uh, uh, makes this what we call the technology diffusion process, uh, you know, difficult. I mean, uh, like any new things that you introduce, we do have a change management stage. Change management means that uh, the users have to kind of adjust their, you know, daily routine to adopt a new technology, uh, and then. Sometimes, you know, people are reluctant to change. This is a sort of a human instinct. So uh, if you do not do enough publicity before that, then it will be really hard for them to, uh, to to get on. I think that's what happened. That's what happened with the ETO now. Um, I think uh, the uh, it's, it's insufficient publicity uh, making people kind of slack in applying for the, uh, for the ETO. Yeah, well, uh, Dr. Wong, good morning. Uh, hi, I think for, hi, yeah. Yeah, for, for the ETO, it's, um, you know, as a car owner myself, I actually don't know about it un until I heard the news yesterday. And I said, do I have to do this? And then I asked my friends, and they thought that it's an option. And, and it is not a must. And so I, I think, you know, this is um, about uh, promotion and publicity, oh, as yeah, you know. Yeah. But um, you know, come, coming, uh, coming back to a, a smart government, so what are the most important components, for example, in smart, gov gov smart government? I noticed that um, the government is still using um, paper in uh, admitting tenders. For example, you see at the um, entrance of the... Uh, uh, government offices in Tamar, you know, you have these boxes for people to deliver their tender documents and five copies each. And I, I once participated in a tender and they, they asked for 10 different copies and it's so really paper heavy. Uh, is this something that is very simple and can be changed very easily? Well, technology-wise it is, but again, it's all about change management. I mean, uh, this is a GDP uh, business, and and you know you have to change the norm, to change the way that has been practiced. Uh, so, uh, but in terms of uh, technology, uh, uh, it is ready. Uh, when I say it's ready, is the technology ready? But uh, uh, because this particular, like G this particular example, they have uh, uh, the, the the GDP application actually also involve uh, kind of GDG processes. GTG means uh, within the department, uh, how do these different departments uh, integrate with each other or work with each other? So uh, we, they, they have been, uh, yeah, our observation, they have been observation by the media uh, that uh, it seems that uh, the interdepartment process, in the matter, uh, the interoperation between governments uh, are still kind of silo. Uh, you know, everybody is doing their own work, and then uh, it takes a little bit of uh, 
time in trans- transferring documents, for example, even if they, if they are now talking about uh, sort of digitizing the G2G uh, process or digital transformation of the G2G process, they're still sticking to uh, the current process and it is not seamless. Well, since you have the new technology now, uh, we could do a lot of things. We could actually make the whole process uh, seamless, faster, more efficient. Uh, that takes a lot of time to actually uh, to revamp uh, the, the kind of process. In fact, the government, uh, uh, I think it was the last government as well, uh, they, they actually invested, they actually claimed that uh, they will set up a special, uh, not, not set up a special unit, uh, but assign the efficiency units uh, to actually look into this problem. Uh, but it, it, there's not much publicity about that. Uh, it seems a bit slow as well. I think uh, I think they're, 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 this is one, one, one major thing that what, uh, the government needs to do to actually work out the, in, uh, the interoperation between departments is one thing. And the second thing, uh, uh, when we talk about digital transformation, uh, the, the design methodology uh, has to be changed as well, uh, which should be more uh, customer-centric, or what we call, we should use what we call user experience as a way of designing uh, the, 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 the APP or the, or, the, or the software or the services or the electronic services. I mean, if, if you were thinking uh, from, from using the, the, your, the inter- from with, with, with your, your, your own way on how I can uh, accept the document uh, and, 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 and actually shorten or, 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 or to shorten the process of application from your own point of view, uh, that's not, this is not sufficient in the digital world. You should think about uh, your user experience, how the customers see your thing, and you want to make it as simple as possible for them. Okay, uh, let's bring in uh, uh, Kieran Humphrey. Uh, good morning to you. Good morning, Jim. Thanks very much for joining us. Uh, you're a litigation and uh, arbitration counsel. Uh, now, the uh, the legal sector legislator Ambrose Lamb has been uh, very critical of the the court system. Says it's time to move on from the dinosaur age uh, and uh, speed up the development of uh, electronic services. I mean, w- what's your experience? Well, there has certainly been a lot of technology used um, in the last decade in the courts. We have seen the advent of interlocutory hearings that have been heard remotely. Um, Electronic bundles have been used in certain cases, and witnesses have given evidence by video link in certain cases. But those cases are relatively few and far between. So the majority of cases, you still will see the old practices and the old traditional ways being adopted. So I can understand where, where there is some demand from... Uh, people within the profession to see more technology being utilised. Um, but it is, it's unfair to say that, uh, that progress has not been made. Um, we, I, think, I think last year was the first year where electronic filing has been rolled out, and that will continue and should be completed by next year. So there, are, there have been some achievements along the way, but um, we've still got a way to go before technology is fully utilised. When you say the old traditional ways, do you mean like sort of you know, big uh, bulging paper files and that kind of thing? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. We, we still see a very document, paper-intensive process in litigation in Hong Kong. Mm. Um, we still see you know, huge trial bundles that are, that are developed for the courts. Um, however, there has been a trend toward using electronic bundles. Now, a good example would be the Commission of Inquiry into the Sha Tin Central Link, 
you know, that was handled fully remotely using electronic, well, not fully remotely, I should say, using electronic bundles. So mm. there was, it was effectively a paperless process. Um, mm. That would be an example of where the courts have shown that they can operate with electronic bundles and without paper. Mm. Um, but as I said, it's just been slow to change. There is, I think, both um, a, a tendency within the profession to favour the old ways, and I'm sure that extends both to you know, the solicitors, barristers, and to judges. Yeah. So there will be a, need to be a process, I think, of, of change management whereby yeah. the users are brought along and are showing the benefits of using the electronic systems, and that may take some time. Um, we are always compared uh, to Singapore, Mr Humphrey, <coughs> and I think in Singapore you can receive and deliver electronic documents um, uh, you know, in the court system. Uh, what, what are the things that Singapore has done already and that Hong Kong has not done so, uh, as far as you know? Well, it's not just Singapore. There are many jurisdictions that have electronic filing and electronic, electronic exchange of documents. Um, but I understand the comparison to Singapore. Um, in those type of jurisdictions whereby technology is used more frequently, what we have seen is, is more remote hearings. So Zoom hearings, for example. Um, we've seen you know, a much greater transition toward paperless courtrooms whereby... Everything is, every document is electronic and is shown on screens. Um, and we've also seen, as I said, witnesses being you know, shown on video links far more often. Um, Hong Kong has the capacity to do that now. It's the enabling legislation for these types of things was passed in 2020 with the Court Proceedings Electronic Technology Ordinance. So we, we have caught up from a procedural perspective, but it's just about implementing these practically. And, um, you know, I think it's also important to emphasise that in places where these procedures have been in place for some time and, and electronic filing and, and remote hearings have been adopted, they're not used uh, fully in the courts. There's still a preference of many users of those courts to, to do things in a traditional way. So I suppose, I suppose a good way of describing those types of jurisdictions like Singapore is to say that you know, they're doing things in almost like a hybrid way and, and Hong Kong is a little bit behind that but should catch up relatively soon. We should see that our courts are very similar to the courts in, say, Australia, England and Wales and Singapore um, within the next you know, three to five years. Right. And is it because of the lack of um, this digitization <coughs> process that, um, you know, we have to wait a long time for these civil hearings and also criminal hearings um, in the Hong Kong Judiciary Annual Reports in the past years, um, the average waiting time for a civil hearing is over 90 up to 180 days. And, of course, um, in a criminal hearing, it is uh, far longer, 383 days. Could um, digitization speed up the process? In, in theory, Ada, it could. But I hesitate to say that that is the only solution. I mean, there, there could be certain... Um, savings of time that could be delivered by technology, but it's not really a, a significant driving factor in, in the terms of, of getting you know, cases completed and, and hearings on. Um, you know, I think there are much more important factors like you know, the, the number of judges that we have available, the number of courtrooms that we have available, but also you know, these things do take time. You know, procedural fairness or natural justice does require that everyone gets reasonable time frames to deal with, with matters. And, um, you know, we, we could certainly try to speed things up by, by throwing more resources at the problem, um, but it's not as simple as saying that 
technology is, is going to solve those problems. Okay, can I ask a question? Yeah, go ahead. Do, uh, yeah. Oh, oh, Dr. oh, oh surely, surely there are many minor cases and, and, and the electronic, uh, electronic process can actually help to handle these minor processes, leaving the judges more time to, uh, on the critical ones. I mean, the waiting time for these minor cases can be long as well today. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Karen Humphrey, would you like to respond? I think, there's, I think there's something to be said about that. Technology can improve efficiency, um, and it, it, could, it could help us you know, free up more time for judges. Um, but, but I do think it's, it's an exaggeration or an oversimplification to say that um, you know, the time frames that it takes to get cases completed can be rapidly sped up by technology. Um, but yes, I think I would agree there is there are certain efficiencies that can be achieved by technology and, and the greater use of those should help improve you know, certain aspects of the court process and deliver perhaps some time savings. But I, I wouldn't go so far as to say that you know, in 20 years when we've adopted all these technologies that um, trials will be done much more efficiently and much, much faster. I still think there's going to be... Um, you know, the process takes time and I, and I, I firmly believe that there's other factors at play. But, but it's just not about the, 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 the trial itself. I know that each trial may take some time, but, uh, uh, but if we cut down the number of cases, for example, uh, we handle most of the minor cases, then these minor cases can be expedited. I mean, we can, then we can leave more time to the serious cases. I mean, my example comes from um, the medical fields. I mean, we do have X-ray, you know, these sort of uh, images and everything. You sh- in the old days, when one doctor looking over thousands of them, it takes really long time. So what we do now, we do have, you know, AI facility to actually screen out many of them and then leaving the doctor looking at 10 hundreds, for example. That saves a lot of time. Yeah, it will be interesting to see how technology can help, um, help judges in the future to, to deliver more efficient outcomes. Um, but I suspect it will be some time away. I mean, for example, arbitration has fully used all the technology that's available for, for you know, many years. Certainly for the last decade, arbitration has been using all the same technologies that have been rolled out uh, in, in other courts around the world. And it hasn't led to a rapid increase in the, in the time frames to the resolution of cases. So I understand where you're coming from, um, Doctor. It's, it's certainly, there's certainly opportunities. Exciting to think about the efficiencies that could be delivered by technology, uh, but I, I hesitate to say that it will deliver significant improvements for the judiciary. I still, still think there's um, some of the some of the old problems like resources are going to be more important rather than um, technology. Okay, well, we're also uh, having a look uh, at the medical sector as well because uh, another uh, new development is that the, the hospital authorities said it's, uh, it's going to launch an, an electronic uh, medical certificate system for, for patients uh, using public hospitals and clinics. And from uh, March the 6th, doctors will be able to issue sick notes um, through the uh, authorities' uh, HA Go app. And they can be amended and shared and stored for up to two years. Uh, we're now uh, joined on the line as well by Alex Lam, chairman of Hong Kong's Patients' Voices. Uh, good morning to you. Good morning. So do you welcome this initiative? Uh, yes, of, of course. Uh, I think uh, this is, um, is something that uh, we have been expecting uh, because uh, uh, technology in, in medical service is uh, something that we have been uh, expecting and uh, it is inevitable 
and uh, it will not only help the the, um, the doctors or the hospital to manage the the patients. It's also um, convenient for the patients or the family members or care um, carer to to um, uh, help looking into the information they have uh, with the technology, uh, including uh, including the um, the medical appointments with the the app on their mobile phone. And now that uh, we have uh, something new from the uh, HA, uh, that uh, the the patients will be able to obtain the uh, the sickness um, um, certificate from doctors by way of uh, electronic means that will help uh, them to manage their, their uh, medical record, uh, getting sick uh, leave uh, more uh, easier. So um, I think the technology, uh, technology is, is something about our future in medical service because we are seeing a lack of doctors and other uh, aligned medical um, service providers. So um, I think this, it, we, we can uh, make a better use of this uh, technology in future. We, we expect to see more. But, uh, I want to go back to Dr. Wong Kamfai because he's leaving us at nine. Uh, Dr. Wong, you yes, mentioned sir. that in the design um, transformation process, um, you know, apps and um, other digital devices uh, make the whole experience uh, uh, more interactive and it is user-centric. And I do know that um, many, many civil servants are taking courses and training, capacity building and understanding design thinking, etc. Now, is this usual for the change management process? You know, what sort of training should be um, um, applied um, uh, so that um, civil servants uh, can undergo the process um, more easily? I think that's the right thing to do, I mean, in terms of training. I mean, UX itself is a, uh, the methodology uh, for, for, for smart government. So uh, I think all the uh, civil servants should be prepared, should, should know about that thing. Uh, so I think that's the right thing to do. But uh, is UX, um, you know, a, a person who understands UX is probably not a civil servant in the various departments that, you know, will have to um, take charge of uh, digitization, right? No, no, but, but you, uh, uh, the, 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 the users themselves, the, the, the normal civil servant, should appreciate that as well. Uh, uh, it, it, it is not about just the designer, it's not just about the, the, te uh, the technical staff, the professionals, but uh, the whole community, uh, i.e. the civil servant community, uh, has to appreciate that. Uh, I think this is this is important. For example, uh, they are they are more proactive in in providing feedbacks, okay, and how they actually uh, uh, turn these feedbacks into actions. So uh, and so 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 all the all the civil servants uh, uh, will 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 participate in the whole UX process. Uh, well, let's ask uh, Kieran Humphrey, because I know uh, you have to leave us at nine as well. Um, so in terms of uh, technology digitization in the uh, legal profession, I mean, how about individual law firms? Are they all sort of uh, mostly geared up for, you know, uh, for, you know, looking forward to the future? Good question, Jim. I would say that um, there is a large part of the Hong Kong profession that uh, still is yet to fully adopt technology. I mean, we are still a relatively conservative profession, if that makes sense. We, we still use fax machines, and um, there are aspects of our practice that still you know, go back many decades. Um, but having said that, there is there has been technology widely adopted, certainly in the larger firms. 
I, I believe those larger firms are ready and willing to switch completely to uh, adopt the new technologies, but there will still be a lot of professionals that don't yet feel ready to adopt and may stick to the old ways. And the system that the courts are, being, are bringing in is optional. So ultimately, it will stay, take some time before everybody switches over to things like electronic filing. Um, and, and I think we'll just have to accept that it will be a hybrid system. Some things will be done the old ways by certain people and some things will be done using new technology by others. Mm. And that will continue for, I think, the foreseeable future. Yeah, some of the more conservative lawyers I know, they, they always think that e-documents are problematic because of the confidentiality issue, Mr Humphrey. That's Would a very good agree? point, Ada. Yes, definitely. And, and also, you know, it's not always the case that technology delivers more efficient outcomes. I mean, we, we know, for example, that the preparation of an e-bundle can be incredibly time-consuming because you have to create cross-links between different documents within an e-bundle. So it all sounds great to do away with paper, um, but it can also lead to a lot of extra work. But confidentiality wasn't an issue uh, in Singapore and in other jurisdictions that have adopted it. And it's all about making sure that the systems are secure. That's, mm. the, that's the way you protect confidentiality, and that's ultimately a technological problem. Um, you know, it's, it, we've seen th throughout the world that, that documents are not always secure if they're stored electronically, but you know, if it's done the right way, it shouldn't be a problem. Okay. So I think ultimately that's just one of the hiccups that, that the professional will have to face when they make the transition to using electronic documents more. But as I said, a lot of firms are already doing it and things have been done that way in, in fields like arbitration for a long time and there really hasn't been too many issues. So I can't foresee confidentiality being a major reason why things would be um, would slow down or the adoption of technology would slow down in the future. Okay, thanks very much for uh, speaking to us on the programme this morning. That was Kieran Humphrey, Litigation and Arbitration Council at uh, O. Melvenny and Myers. And thanks very much to Dr. Wong Kam Fai, Associate Dean of the Faculty of Engineering at the Chinese University. Um, Alex Lam, please stay with us. Uh, a quick look at the weather. It's currently 17 degrees. Uh, humidity is at 64%. We'll be back in three minutes. It's a substantive dialogue, and in the end, they want unity. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Welcome back to Back Chat with Ada Wong and me, Jim Gould. And uh, this morning, in our, our main topic for the main part of the programme, we're talking about the adoption of uh, new technologies uh, in various sectors, uh, including the medical sector. Uh, we have uh, with us still uh, on the line um, Alex Lam. Uh, sorry, I'm, I beg your pardon. Yeah, uh, Alex Lam, who's the chairman of Hong Kong Patients uh, Voices. And just before we speak to Alex Lam again, I have a couple of uh, emails here which uh, I'd like to read out. Uh, this one from Peter says... Um, <coughs> I received this uh, Hong Kong e-toll tag a month ago for my company car. While the explanation of how to use it is clear, there's absolutely no explanation of why, when and where. As a result, I've not installed it. A bit pathetic, really. Uh, no wonder it's now been postponed. That's Peter uh, referring uh, to the plan to uh, uh, introduce um, uh, the electronic toll system for the Territory's tunnels, which has uh, uh, been delayed until May because it turned out that around uh, about half of uh, all registered drivers um, um, hadn't uh, signed up to use the, the tags yet. Uh, another email here from David says, uh, 
this new technology is great, but I don't want to carry a telephone everywhere I go to do everything. I don't want a telephone that's uh, manufactured to be useless within two years, so I have to buy a new one and reset all the apps and go through all the problems again. I don't want to rely on the telephone because if the whole system goes down, everybody will be totally useless. I don't want to rely on the telephone because if something goes wrong on the computer, I have to call another uh, com computer to solve the problem. I don't want the government documents on my phone that uh, uh, which I have to apply for have to apply for and is compulsory. I do not want the monopoly uh, by the telephone companies. Old people don't like new technology because we have to relearn everything. Uh, that from David. Um, if you want to get in touch, our Facebook page is Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. You can email us at backchat at rthk.hk or you can give us a call on 233 Um Alex Lamb, how about uh, David's point about old people and new technology? I mean, obviously a lot of people using the public health services are, are pretty elderly. Do you think, uh, do you think they're sort of uh, uh, clued up enough or, or interested enough uh, in, in order to fully embrace uh, things like uh, the new app, the, the, you know, the, the HA Go app, that sort of thing? Yeah, well, uh, when I heard the, the, um, the launching of the scheme yesterday over the, the radio, that uh, uh, I thought that uh, the, the scheme may affect uh, the elderly. Uh, well, on second thought, I think that is something that it, it probably does not uh, affect the, uh, the elderly because they don't need uh, the, uh, the silly certificate. Uh, uh, but but uh, we, we have to get um, uh, a real that uh, this, uh, this um, uh, new thing, um, talking about the electronic and medical uh, certificate that uh, and other other things that may come up uh, from the AJ uh, that we have to expect. Uh, I understand that uh, not many people are good in using uh, uh, new technology, including the, the smartphones that uh, we we have uh, uh, in use uh, for for quite some time. Uh, but uh, in, in other places, including the mainland China, I think the people, including the elderly, they, they are get used to this technology. They, they carry the phone everywhere to make payment, to get the, uh, the information they need to check with other people, friends, family. Uh, so I think it's something that um, we have to prepare for uh, the advancement of technology. Uh, I think the, the uh, electronic certificate is one thing, uh, but we may expect something more in future, uh, including the um, uh, the uh, online diagnosis by remote uh, <coughs> form, mm -hmm. or by uh, a real doctor, or by uh, mm -hmm. artificial intelligence. There's something we have to prepare for this. Otherwise, that would be too late and too uh, nonsense for people who are not uh, get used to it. And then uh, we expect them to uh, uh, cope with the, the pace. Right. Um, Alex, you know a lot about um, patients and the processes they go through. So, um, you know, starting from making appointments at HA, um, you know, where do you see digitization will be more handy and, you know, or when would digitization become a problem or a pain point? Uh, starting from the beginning, if you're sick, you need um, to go to HA to get a doctor or go to outpatient clinic. I think all this is not digitized yet, right? Yeah. When, yeah. when is the point digitization comes in? Um, well, I think the... the, the um Electronic, um, well, especially HA Go, came into 
place about two years ago. But talking about the uh, appointment, uh, it's about last year. Um, because uh, we, we had the um, COVID pandemic, that uh, it is um, difficult for people to, to make the appointment. Uh, the, the, the smartphone may be a good uh, media to help um, um, to help people to make the booking, right. to get uh, informed of their situation of the booking. If there's any change of the, the appointment, that they may be notified. Uh, as we see that there are some changes of uh, medical service over the past three years, cancellation of uh, non-urgent um, uh, operations, and uh, a telephone may be may not be a, a good way of uh, communication between the patients and the, the hospitals. So this technology may help uh, people to to uh, communicate with the, the HA, with the hospitals, get the information they need. But of course, there's some uh, improvement that, that we need because it's, we, uh, we we see that HA is doing this bit by bit. Yes, and then the, there's a whole big uh, area with uh, e-health, uh, uh, with uh, all our records. Yes. Uh, how is that doing? Are you happy with that, uh, with the whole e-health system? Well, I think the e-health system is doing uh, very good at the moment. Uh, that allows uh, the uh, not only the, the doctors in the uh, public hospital to, to check your record, uh, but also the uh, private doctors in the clinics or private hospitals to check your records uh, because uh, patients are generally uh, uh, making use of both systems to, 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 to get their, their health service. So it will be um, better in future that the, um, uh, the medical record from the private clinic can also be shared by private doctors in public hospitals. It's a mutual uh, sharing of information. I think it will be benefit the, the patients, but not just, uh, you know, uh, currently the, 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 the public doctors may not be able to, to check how you get your service in the private clinics. That's something that we, we have to see right. uh, improvement in future. And, and from patients' rights uh, perspective, um, we hear a lot about uh, leakage of uh, patients' information and confidentiality issues. Are you concerned yes. about this? Of course. I think... Um, um, Medical records can be very private because um, um, it may be something that, uh, of course, whether you are you're getting COVID or not is, is not a big deal at present. But you have uh, some uh, sexually transmitted diseases. Probably you don't want everyone to, to get access to this. Uh, that would be very embarrassing. So, so privacy is very important. So I expect DHA will have a... A secure system in place to make sure that uh, this information stored in the system will not be leaked. Uh, however, we, we see that uh, this information can be shared uh, locally or internationally. So we, 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 we expect the HAs to, to um, make sure that uh, you know, they have a very strong system to, to uh, avoid leaking of the, this information. Uh, we, we, we see this um, leaking uh, from time to time, but uh, mostly they are uh, losing computer, losing a USB uh, drive, and that's it. Oh, of course, yes, there, there are rare incidents to have a breach in their, their database, but it is rare, and I, I believe that Chase is doing something about it.
Uh, just going back to the HA Go app, what do you think about the design of the app? I mean, it's quite comprehensive, isn't it? I mean, you can you can obviously get it in Chinese or English. Uh, you can, as you mentioned, you can use it to to book appointments. You can you can pay the hospital authority. I mean, in, uh, do do you, do you find it uh, is it very user friendly? And what do you think the response to it has been? Well, I think it's good that uh, we we actually expect this to happen a long time ago. Uh, because the technology will certainly help people to to get the information they, they need, get the service they need. Um, well, we, 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 we heard that uh, the, the audience, one of the audience uh, uh, doesn't like uh, the technology, but we, we have to uh, prepare for this. Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, it helps a lot. I mean, um, especially the elderly, they have no idea about their appointments. There. So if they have uh, uh, the app in their smartphone, uh, uh, if it's um, user-friendly, it will certainly help uh, help them to manage their, their appointment because, like, my mother is, is very old. Um, he, she, she always asks, you know, when, when is my uh, next appointment? That, uh, of course, we'll be helping her. Mm-hmm. But if she is uh, alone, that uh, nobody else is helping her, then it will be a big trouble. She may miss the appointment mm-hmm. that uh, she has been, you know, expecting for months, if not years. Right, and, and 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 probably finally on on telehealth, I know that um, you know the pandemic expedited a lot of um, uh, telehealth uh, appointments. So, for example, my you know I go to a Chinese herbalist, a Chinese medicine practitioner, and um, you know he will talk to me over Zoom or just WhatsApp, and um, he will have to look at my face, and, and then he will send me a prescription and also the medicine um, through a courier. How how um, how uh, prevalent is this now uh, in the community? Uh, do people accept telehealth, uh, or they really prefer to go to the clinic and wait for a long time until a doctor sees you? Well, I, I think it's good to have a choice. I think uh, we are, we're talking about patients and healthcare. Choice is one of the five um, uh, uh, major principles that uh, you you have to let the patients uh, the right to choose the service. They, they want. So if they want convenience, they do telemedicine. If they want to have a precise uh, 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 diagnosis, they go to see the doctor in person. Uh, so it's something they choose. But uh, of course, we recommend that uh, if you have a, a minor um, uh, symptom that uh, you make use of the telemedicine uh, for, for, for advice. But you have a, a bigger problem, then of course it will be better for you to to go see a doctor in person, so that they can, uh, you know, talk to you a bit more, uh, look at you, and check your body, things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, I mean, the hospital authority said that uh, ultimately it wants to go paperless. Uh, did you think that's a realistic prospect? Well, I think yes. Um, however, I think there has to be some way that uh, when people, patients want to get a, a physical paper, that they, they must have a way to, to get it. Uh, if it is necessary, then they, they might need to pay a fee to get the physical copy from uh, from the hospital because uh, patients are not getting this just for a sick leave a day or two, uh, but for people who are making uh, a claim in the uh, traffic accident, <coughs> making a claim in the insurance that probably they, they need a a physical copy signed by a doctor or the hospital to 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 support the claim. Uh, but looking at the the current system that the HA is uh, 
<coughs> going to uh, put in place or launch uh, next month, that um, that we are told that uh, the records will be kept for two years, that you can have two years for to get the assets or to, to verify the record by way of a QR code. I think for, for a claim in court that, um, <coughs> that may take years to finish, that two years may not be sufficient for, for the parties to check the uh, authenticity or admissibility of this as evidence in supporting your claims is something the DHA has to um, consider whether uh, a system <coughs> uh, would allow patients <coughs> to get access after two years. Right. And, and the the shortening of the queue uh, of, for example, you know, seeing a specialist, an eye specialist, that is still very long and, you know, people, patients criticize this queue. Do you think the use of apps and this HA Go could um, help to to bring more efficiency to the system? So, if, for example, if this eye specialist has, uh, has some openings on one day, it can actually show up on the app and uh, inform patients. Do, do you think this works? Well, I think it will it will help to a certain degree, but it will not uh, solve all the problems we see in the public system, public healthcare system. That uh, will help to the, the, help them to manage, help the patients to to um, to manage their their appointments. Uh, but in the end, we need doctors. Uh, we need technology to help doctors to get more efficient and get more precision in diagnosis. So um, technology will only help, but not to replace doctors uh, in the end. So uh, I think HA will have to uh, consider how to make good uh, uh, chemistry between technology and professionals in better treatment of patients. Okay, well, thank you very much for speaking to us uh, on the programme this morning. Uh, that was uh, Alex Lam, uh, Chairman of Hong Kong Patients' Voices. You're listening to Backchat. Call us on 233-88-266 and have your say. And for the last part of this morning's programme, we're going to turn our attention to a different topic, and this being February the 14th. We're talking about uh, Valentine's Day. Um, interesting uh, survey uh, the other day... Uh, which was done by uh, an artificial intelligence market research company, uh, Voti, it's called, which suggested that uh, 76% of people in Hong Kong said they were unlikely to celebrate Valentine's Day this year. And uh, uh, many of them uh, were young people born in the 90s and millennials who said that uh, the occasion was not part of their culture, which may come as a surprise to a lot of people. Anyway, we're now uh, joined uh, on the line by Valentina Chudos, who's uh, um, a regular on Radio 3 and uh, is a dating and relationship coach. Uh, Valentina, good morning to you. Good morning, Jim. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Thanks for joining us. Um, so what did you think when you saw the results of this survey? I'm not really surprised by these results, mm. okay. <laughs> uh, even though it's a little bit um, maybe counterintuitive that the younger generation will not take on all the traditional, um, let's say, patterns of behavior when it comes to dating and courtship. I think uh, there is also a desire for the younger generation to make up their own mating rituals. So if we think of the idea of Valentine's Day and the traditional approach to Valentine's Day, chocolate flowers, uh, restaurant, expensive dinners as signs to show love. I think these days as the 
millennials and people born in the 90s spend a lot more time online, they are creating new mating rituals. So in that respect, I don't uh, feel it's a major surprise. Mm. So they, they think Valentine's Day is a bit old-fashioned? In a way, mm. yes. Mm. Um, and also, I think younger people prefer to, um, let's say, invent new rules or new ways of, uh, of showing their their affection. I think, obviously, it has something to do with the uh, financial uh, situation, like how much money do you have, and do you really want to celebrate uh, a certain holiday that, to all in, most intents and purposes, has been quite commercialized? Right. And, and, and do you think that uh, Valentine's Day is actually too commercialized and you do need a lot of money because roses are very expensive today? And so, um, and I think the people in a, in a more stable relationship uh, would celebrate and go out for dinner while those younger ones have other rituals, as you say. Yeah, I think, um, I feel there's a little bit of a pressure and people feel pressured to book that restaurant, to, there's so much communication, so much marketing around this idea. If you've walked around town in the last few days, you would have noticed that florists were invading pavements, preparing these huge bunches of flowers. And just as you said, they are not cheap for something that will disappear in a few days. Um, so I would say that the more traditional couples would do it just because it's part of the routine and it's, uh, let's say, an accepted way of, uh, of showing their love. They think, okay, I've done my, you know, tick this box if I take my partner out or if I do something special on Valentine's Day, it's a sign of reassurance. Um, but I feel that, you know, I am a firm believer that you should show your love for your partner every day, not just on Valentine's Day. Um, and... There are these days, uh, I guess people maybe get a little bit less materialistic and they feel that different kinds of love that cost less money will have more impact. Right. You just said that uh, the millennials, they have their own um, dating rituals. Can you tell us a bit about that? I think there is a lot to do with experiences. Um, obviously, gifts are an easy shortcut to showing someone you love and it is the gift-giving uh, tradition is, is something that is part of our species, showing love, showing the value that we uh, allocate to that particular relationship. But I think especially millennials and, and people who are exposed to all of these uh, social media posts, they like to have more um, of an experiential gift, if you like. So they like to spend time together doing something special, so create memories. Um, so I would say that um, based on my experience working with clients, they don't necessarily expect to do the same dinner and flowers, but they do uh, maybe book a staycation or maybe not necessarily on Valentine's Day when it's very expensive. Um, so people offset the holiday a little bit. Um, they don't necessarily think that it's absolutely a must to celebrate today, but they would still do something around this holiday as a reminder. Of course, it depends what stage of the relationship you're at. If you're in a new relationship, and you want to demonstrate that love, you might do something a little bit more dramatic, like a full weekend vacation, or um, you go for uh, a trip or something like that. Maybe people who've been in more established relationships would, would go for a hike or something special, would get some chocolate or do a little picnic. So I feel that things are moving more towards those kind of, um, more more towards quality time, if I am to frame this in the con in the context of languages of love. 
Yeah, I mean, flower sellers have been reporting uh, uh, brisk uh, sales. There's all kinds of restaurant promotions uh, going on. So, I mean, clearly, it's still an important occasion for many people, isn't it? But uh, uh, in interesting what you say there, that uh, it depends on the stage of the relationship to, to a large extent, I suppose. <laughs> you know, maybe people who have been together for a long time uh, uh, aren't going to pay it as much attention as, uh, you know, if it's a new relationship. Well, it, it, like I said, a, a gift, the gift related to Valentine's Day is about showing how much you value your partner. And um, like I said, we've been in a long relationship. A lot of yeah. people take each other for granted quite a lot, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, as as a uh, relationship uh, coach, I mean, would you would you advise would you advise people, uh, uh, you know, couples who've been together for a long time to, to um, you know, maybe try something different, maybe you know, uh, experiment with something uh, uh, like uh, you know a, a trip away or, or you know, what, what do you think? I would say that if you just follow the Valentine's Day ritual. It has be and you've been with a partner for a long time, it has become routine and gradually the value of this ritual would be diminished for many people. Yes, for some it's important to remember that we have birthdays, we have Christmases, and we have Valentine's Day, but um, I do know for a fact from all the clients that I work with that people want to be appreciated and loved every single day. Um, so the impact of a nice dinner and a bunch of flowers on any other day of the week will actually be bigger, believe it or not, because it's not expected. So if something is done just to fulfill an existing expectation, it doesn't really show uh, forethought, it doesn't show that you're truly um, making this gesture as a result of the fact that you feel it, that you are moved towards showing your partner um, that love and appreciation. If you do it on any other day of the year, it'll probably land better. So if I work, for example, with a, a client or a couple, who have been together for a long time and maybe they're feeling a little bit underappreciated and they want to reignite that connection, uh, I would encourage them to identify the languages of love. You know, one person may have a different language of love. It can be spending quality time together, engaging in physical touch a little bit more, like feeling more physically loved, um, uh, doing acts of service, like doing little gestures for your partner or um, giving them a lot more compliments, words of affirmation. So really it depends on how a person likes to uh, feel appreciated. It's not always through um, flowers and, and restaurants. So depending on this, I would um, discuss with my clients what makes the most sense for them, what will they mm -hmm. feel most impressed by. And, and what about those people who are not in a relationship, they are single, what should they do on a day like this? What's your advice? Well, they do on every day. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, there is a lot of pressure as well for being single because there's this mindset that everyone is going to be loved up today. I'm going to see all these streets, all these people in the streets carrying bouquets of flowers and people coming to the office delivering flowers. So there is definitely a certain sadness uh, and pressure to be in a relationship um, in these situations. Um, so I'm a big fan of self-love, giving yourself the love that you expect from others. So I would say doing something that really makes you happy today, like a massage, a pampering session, a facial, um, play a ball game if you're a man. Um, do whatever makes you happy on a day like this, because if it's 
if we think of Valentine's Day as um, an occasion to receive love and to feel appreciated, does it really matter who's giving that to you? Or a book a dinner with a friend and feel the connection with that person. But that that I see more these days. Uh, ladies uh, could you know are very successful these days in their careers, and uh, a couple of ladies would uh, dine together, and you know it seems that they couldn't care less about what day is it. Well, we have a name for it. It's called Galentine. Ah, okay. Uh, 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 sorry again. Galentine from yeah. Girls' Night. Oh, oh right. Okay. G G A W L. Another interesting factor of, of the survey uh, um, on that topic said about 38% of singles said they would stay at home on Valentine's Day. Only 13% said they would find a date to celebrate. I mean, some people might think it's a bit remarkable that even 13% of people would actually want to find a date to go out on Valentine's Day if they're not, uh, you know, if they haven't been together before. So, does that sort of in indicate the pressure that people might be under to be to be seen to be out as a couple? There is definitely a pressure. I think culturally, we want this day to be special, regardless of uh, our current relationship status, and because. The dating scene in Hong Kong lately has been a little bit, um, let's say, muted yeah. due to uh, pandemic and everything. Sure. Yeah. I think people are finally feeling like maybe today I'm going to be lucky and meet the love of my life. Right. <laughs> we still believe in happily ever after, you know. Yeah, great. Okay, lovely. Thank you very much uh, for speaking to us on the program this morning. Uh, that was um, Valentina Tudos, who is a dating and relationship coach and you can hear um, Valentina on Radio 3 uh, every Saturday morning on, on uh, Yamcha with uh, Louisa on Louisa Tam's programme. Thank you to our listeners. Thanks to people who wrote in. Thanks very much to you, Ada. Thank you, Jim. And a quick look at the weather. It's going to be mainly cloudy today. Uh, one or two rain patches, uh, but becoming, uh, sorry, becoming appreciably cooler further. Bright periods with temperatures uh, rising to about 19 degrees during the day. And the outlook at temperatures tomorrow morning will fall to about 13 degrees in the urban areas. A couple of degrees lower in the new territories. It'll be brighter, though, uh, with sunny periods in the following couple of days. Uh, still cool in the morning and dry during the day. Currently, it's 17 degrees. The humidity is at 63%. The strong monsoon signal is in effect. Before making a booking at a guest house, remember to check if it has a valid.